listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. teens and and by the way you know Andrew said he graduated from high school 10 years ago I'm not going to tell you how many years ago I graduated from high school but it's just a bit a little longer than 10 years okay Uh, so for some of you maybe you're still in your teens or maybe your your early 20s for those of us that are a little bit older I'd like for you to try to imagine and think back uh, when you were in your teens or in your 20s And uh, try to imagine with me if you had devoted a considerable amount of time to following an inspirational leader, truly believing that he and his followers were going to change the world. You'd come to trust this leader and to believe that he was going to establish a new form of government in the capital of your country and that you were going to uh, that that new government was going to bring about much needed lasting change and that you were going to have the privilege to be in on the ground floor of establishing a new way of life. And yet suddenly this inspirational leader begins to drop hints that it's not going to play out as you had been dreaming. Now I'm not talking about a political campaign or some uh, candidate in our current political atmosphere, I'm talking about the very first followers of Jesus. And maybe you'd never thought about it before, but we believe that many of them, or some of them at least, were maybe possibly just in their late teens or early 20s when they started following Jesus. And there had to be just this this well of excitement that they were a part of something big. They were a part of something great. The crowds were beginning to grow and they were around this inspirational leader. And then following three years of following Jesus, these very first disciples began to hear Jesus make comments like, dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And phrases like, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. As you can only imagine, these first followers of Jesus were deeply confused and and somewhat perplexed by these comments that Jesus was making. And it's with this as the setting that Jesus said some of his most famous words that you've probably heard before when he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, these words often quoted at funerals, Actually, Jesus is preparing his friends for his upcoming departure from this world. 
And yet in the midst of this teaching is an incredible promise and portrait of the next world. In some older English translations of that section I just read, maybe some of you had heard growing up or maybe even you're reading from a Bible that still says, uh, instead of my father's house, it says my father's mansion. And yet after researching this passage and reading what commentators had to say and digging into some of the original language, I believe that, that what Jesus is is more describing here, instead of a, a mansion, he's, he's describing what would look more like to us like a large apartment complex or hotel with the Heavenly Father not only dwelling in there but providing other many rooms. As I consider this portrait, I'm reminded of many years ago as a college math student. I was given a problem in one of my math analysis classes And here was how the problem read. Imagine or just picture for this problem's sake that that there is a hotel with an infinite number of rooms and an infinite number of buses brought up an infinite number of guests to uh, that hotel with infinite number of rooms. Would you ever run out of rooms? And although it took me several pages of mathematical and logical analysis, I came to the conclusion that you would never run out of available rooms. Now, although I wasn't that strong in my faith at that time, I could have simply said, don't let your heart be troubled. There are many rooms. And then sign Jesus. But I'm not sure if that would have flown with my math professors. Bob Russell, an author and minister, when he was preaching on this passage and writing on it, he had this to say, this description about heaven. See if this rings a note in your heart. He says, Jesus tells us that there are many, there are other rooms in heaven, not just personal rooms. I picture a worship room where you can go and hear the best music, the best preachers, and the most captivating testimonies. I think there'll be a recreational room where you can go and sign up for tours, activities, and golf trips. I think there'll be an instant replay room where you can go and review any event in history to see it exactly the way it originally happened. Wouldn't it be interesting to review your own life and see the number of times the hand of God protected you and you didn't even know it? Maybe there'll be a classroom where you can go and learn about things that have always puzzled you. I want to learn how the Grand Canyon was formed. Did it take millions of years for the Colorado River to etch it out of limestone rock, or did the Lord create it that way? Was it the result of Noah's flood? He concludes by saying, so heaven isn't a place where you're bored, sitting around strumming a harp. There are many rooms that will rivet your attention. I don't know about you, but I love thinking and talking about heaven. And yet, with this, this beautiful picture of heaven that Jesus paints, it's really a response and it's a backdrop uh, for the ensuing question from one of the first followers who, honestly, I can relate to, this, this guy named Thomas who, who we read about in Scripture that at times had doubts and, and honest questions. And, and after Jesus paints this picture of heaven, uh, uh, Jesus, 
Thomas said in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Thomas, maybe like us sometimes, is a bit clueless here. What are you talking about, Jesus? Where are you going? And because we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And with this fascinating context, Jesus gives us our sixth and maybe one of the, maybe the most controversial of all the identifiers that we're looking at in this series of messages when he stated emphatically the identifier, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, honestly, as I've been teaching and preaching for for years now, some 30 years in full-time ministry, when I first got into ministry and first started teaching and preaching, this, this section of Scripture really didn't raise that many eyebrows. And yet, as we fast forward 30 years later, with the rise of religious pluralism and political correctness, This is an identifier of Jesus that raises controversy and results in many people pushing back from Jesus not simply saying that he is a way or a truth or a life, but, and there's no mistaking about it, he states emphatically that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Maybe for some of you today, you struggle with this claim of Jesus. And possibly, it's claims like this that have stood in your way of of really embracing him and becoming his follower. Possibly for some of you who who have crossed that line of faith and you have boldly identified yourself as a Jesus follower, and yet, Whenever this passage is read, you honestly become a little bit nervous, especially if you've brought a, a neighbor or relative or, or a friend to come to church, and then the, the, the preacher gets up and says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you get a little nervous. How are they going to react? Because this statement seems so exclusive in a world that celebrates inclusivity. Now, before we dig into this passage, let's acknowledge that, that far too many churches and groups in the name of Jesus have gone beyond what Jesus said and been, in my opinion, in my experience, too exclusively. Honestly, I've been a part of groups like that in the past, and I'm not advocating that approach because Jesus didn't say a particular church, a particular denomination or group of churches, a particular Christian doctrine, or for that matter, Jesus didn't say that Christianity is the way, the truth, and life. But he did say emphatically that he, Jesus Christ, is the way and the truth and the life. As we wrestle And as we seek to hold up this true identity of Jesus, we must honestly wrestle with what this I am statement means and ask ourselves, are we willing to embrace this aspect of Jesus' identity as well? And just in case there's any confusion on the first statement, I am the way and the truth and life, he follows up with an equally bold statement when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, let's remember, this is a statement that is an, an answer, a response to Thomas's question, how can we know the way to the Father? So let's dig into this controversial statement by Jesus by examining each of these three identifiers. The central focus, because it's a response to Thomas's question, how do, I, how do we know the way, This entire statement could be summed up under the umbrella that Jesus is the way. That's the central comment statement here. Jesus is the way. And I'm going to add to that, he is the narrow road. In using the word way, Jesus is describing a certain path or road that will lead to the correct destination. Interestingly enough, the same word that's used in John 14 that's translated way is the same word that is used in another section of Scripture in Matthew when Jesus describes a narrow road that Jesus points to and that he provides to heaven. In Matthew's gospel, uh, we read in Matthew 7, verse 13, where Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road. That's the same word. It's used in John 14 when he says he's the way. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, before you completely quit listening to me today, let's realize that if you're struggling with this teaching on the narrow road, you aren't struggling with me, okay? You're struggling with Jesus, A number of years ago, about 20 years ago, before I started realizing how controversial this statement was, I had an opportunity to share my faith with a a family member that comes from a different background than I do. And and this family member was starting to ask questions about my faith and about the church that Jay and I were part of at the time. And so I thought, well, let's start with something real basic. And so I started with John 14. And, And my family member responded real Uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting. And she said, I can't believe that you are so narrow-minded and so judgmental after I just read this verse. And I went, whoa, whoa. I said, if you're upset, I said, I want you to understand, you're not upset with me. You're upset with Jesus Christ. That's what he said. I'm just sharing with you what he said. It seems to me that the earliest followers of Jesus embraced this aspect of Jesus' identity. In fact, if, you, if you're looking in the message notes, if you read on in the book of Acts, which describes the, the first 30-year history of the acts of those early Jesus followers, it, it says that they even identified themselves as those who belong to the way. You see, they embraced it. Now, preparing for this message, I've thought a lot about that statement. Jesus is the way. He's the narrow road that leads to eternal life. And the more I think about it, the more I read about it, the more I uh, contemplate the, the meaning and the power of that statement, the more I'm convinced that if we will really allow our hearts to embrace this teaching, it's good news. You see, naturally, I'm a person who struggles with finding his way. I'm not sure why, but when the Lord passed out internal compasses and and human navigational systems, I didn't receive one. I don't know why. It's really humbling 
I get turned around so easy, it's embarrassing. You know, if I go into a building and go in the stairwell, and it's a building I'm not familiar with, I get totally turned around even how to get out of the building. I mean, it's just, it's humbling to admit that, but it's true. My wife knows this about me. It's just, she says I don't pay attention, but and maybe that's it. Maybe I'm too busy talking or too busy, you know, listening or thinking about other things, but, but I just get turned around and, and, and really struggle uh, with directions. You know, when, and, and Jane learned this early about me. She knew what she was signing up to when we got married. Our first, one of our first dates, she was a student in Indianapolis, and, and I went to pick her up at her dorm, and, and we went out on a date, and then after the date, I, I left her in the lobby, and I left and an hour later, it was in Indianapolis. I don't know if you know this, but Indianapolis is called the Circle City. I went in a complete circle, ended up back in her dorm room, uh, dorm lobby an hour later, and I called her. I said, you're going to have to help me get out of Indianapolis. It was embarrassing. Great way to impress someone on an early date, okay? But, uh, you know, and, and because of that, because I know I'm directionally challenged, I, I have really embraced the technology that's provided us GPSs. And, and some of you don't know this, even those of you who have been to your home before, I still use GPS to get back there, okay? And, and so on Friday, earlier this weekend, Jane and I uh, had the privilege to go to Columbus and be a part of a wedding. Uh, Gina Gorka and Cody Brassfield, some of you remember uh, Gina, she was baptized just last Sunday. And on Friday, she was married. I'd say that's a pretty good week for Gina, okay? And, and I had the privilege to be a part of, of both her baptism and also the wedding. But, but I put my iPhone on the dash of our car, and I typed in the address to that wedding in Columbus. And, and in fact, I used my favorite GPS system that's called Waze, okay? And it just shows me the way. Uh, so I went the Waze way, and, and it's good because some of you might say, well, just take whatever road. You know, there's this theory out there. Just whatever road you want to take, it'll lead you to, to heaven. Well, if I took that approach when it came to driving, I would have probably ended up in Cincinnati instead of Columbus. You see, you just can't take any road and get to your destination. You have to choose the right path. Now, although some say today there are many roads to heaven, and it doesn't matter which road you take, as long as it seems right to you. And yet, when it comes to navigating our way to God, Jesus is saying that we are all directionally challenged, and that we all need some direction. He tells us you don't need to simply follow your gut. He, does, he says, don't allow, uh, simply take other people's words for it of how to have eternal life. He, he doesn't even say that we have to have some fancy GPS system. He simply says, I am the way. Jesus is the way. And we can have certainty that if we follow him and his directions for our lives, that we will end up in our Father's house. In heaven. Isn't that good news? That Jesus is the way. That's good news for me, someone who's directionally challenged. He's the way. Jesus didn't only say he was the way, he says he's the narrow road. 
And because of that, that follows up the next, next uh, qualifier of this statement is not only is he the way, he is the truth. He is the true way. He is the reliable answer if you're taking notes. Now, this bold claim can also create a strong reaction in the 21st century. To have the gall to say that there's one true, correct way. Well, some would say that's just too narrow. And yet, let's think about this fear of being too narrow. There are certain very important areas of life that we don't want just any answer. We want the correct, reliable answer. Let's imagine that this week you received news that you had a fast-growing cancerous tumor in your abdomen. And you went to the doctor and he informed you, we're not sure exactly where the tumor is located. We're not sure exactly how to best get it out. But let's just open your chest up and we'll just start digging around. If you had a surgeon say that to you, what would you think? I think it's, it's time to get a second opinion, right? I mean, I want, if somebody's going to open up my chest and start going in there, I want to know that they've got the, the, the best diagnostic equipment, that they have a good track record, that they've got some experience doing this surgery, that they, they have a correct path. To treat me. I don't want somebody just using some experimental strategy or guessing or just their philosophy. I want a precise, reliable answer that I can have confidence and assurance. When it comes to eternity, who has a better track record than Jesus? He is the one who has identified with himself with the Father by saying, I am. Remember, we started this series by saying that's how God described himself to Moses. I am who I am. And when Jesus identifies himself, he says, I am. He's the one that came from heaven to earth. He's the one that, he says, I am the good shepherd. He was willing to lay his life down for us. And last week we talked about how he he says, I am the resurrection life. He took his life back up. And by the way, if anyone can boldly predict that they will go to Jerusalem, be killed, be betrayed and killed, and on the third day come back from the dead, and then back it up by doing it, and you know what? I'm going to take their word on anything. You see, Jesus is truth. And we can have confidence and assurance in him. Earlier in, in John's gospel, in John chapter 8, Jesus said to the people who believed him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus promises to his followers that if you will remain faithful to to his teachings, that we will know the truth. He not only spoke that as if he was teaching truth, he said, I am the embodiment of truth. I've shared with you before that it's amazing to me how many times whatever I'm teaching or preaching on on a particular weekend, I will be tested or challenged in either the week previous to that message or the week after that message. Well, that happened again this week, both ways. Last week, I showed you this video of how these teens were just so preoccupied with social media and their their iPhones that they missed everything that was going on around them. Wouldn't you know that even that evening, Sunday evening, 
I'm walking into a Starbucks to, to get some coffee and to read a little bit. And as I'm ready to walk in and step on the sidewalk, my phone just went off. We've, we do this family text thing in our family where, where we throw out a question, everybody responds. And my phone was just going off because like five of people in our family were responding at the same time. And so I pull the phone out as I'm stepping onto the sidewalk. Little did I know that it was one of those handicapped spots that curved. And I just crashed and burned and, and hurt my hand and was bleeding and everything. And I'm thinking, I just preached on this today. <laughs> it was more embarrassing than it hurt. And then this week I knew that I was going to be teaching on Jesus is the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. And wouldn't you know it that this was the week that, this past week that I went to go get my driver's license renewed. You might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, first of all, I had to take the eye test. And, and first of all, they, you know, they said, take your glasses off. They said, read row number five. I couldn't even see where five was, so I couldn't read it. So then they put, I put my glasses on. I passed. I thought, okay, I'm good. And I think, okay, everything's going great. So they're, they're ready to take my picture, but before they do, they look at my old ID, and they said, okay, uh, Mr. Hendricks, is there anything that uh, you need to change on your ID? And the lady said, for example, has your eye color changed? And I thought, whose eye color changed? I thought, oh. She saw dark brown for my hair, okay? <laughs> I thought that was pretty subtle, all right? So I said, okay, well, I need to be truthful. Probably need to change it to gray, right? And so I, that, that was painful, but I thought, why wasn't I teaching and preaching on grace this weekend? Or, or, or uh, you know, transformation, maybe that would be good. But instead, truth. So you see, when we follow Jesus, the truth, the one who embodies the truth, we're called to walk in the truth. We're called to live a life of truth. Now, as I shared, some will say, well, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is too narrow. And, and if you say that Jesus is the truth and that this is the narrow road, then it, it seems not only exclusive, but it seems restrictive. I want more freedom than that. But Jesus says that the truth that if we will embrace him and his teachings and how he embodies truth, the reality is that we will not find restriction, but we'll find freedom. You see, left to ourselves, we, we can mistakenly pursue that which we think will bring freedom to our life, but instead we end up being enslaved and imprisoned by the very things that, that promised freedom. It's like the little boy who went fishing and and after catching a fish, he, instead of, instead of keeping the fish or instead of throwing it back in the water, he, he, he felt for the fish. And he said, I want you to be free like me. And so he put the fish on the bank and said, fish, be free and live on the ground. Well, we know that's not going to end well, right? Because fish weren't created to live on land. That's not the habitat that God had designed for them. And you see... For us, when we try to live our lives in a way that we weren't designed to live it, when we try to throw off what we think is the restraint of God's word and God's teaching, instead of finding freedom, we end up being enslaved and find death. Now, in the midst of this 
struggle of trying to embrace what Jesus is saying. He says, I am the truth. Embrace my teachings and you'll truly, truly find freedom. My friend Joe Tipton, who's a minister in Kentucky, wrote this. Jesus is the answer to every problem in your life. If you're an addict, he's the way to freedom. If your marriage is in trouble, he's the way to restoration. If you're going through life scared to death of what might happen, he is the way to courage. If you're really disconnected, he is the way to community. If you're lonely, he's a constant companion. You see, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth who brings freedom and answers to our life. And Jesus closes out this bold identifying statement by saying that he is life. I love the promise of life that Jesus offers to provide for those who will truly identify with him as the lifeline from heaven, the rescue rope from heaven. Listen to this invitation that Jesus offers to all who have been beat up in their own personal life and are looking for help and looking for solutions. I love how the Message Bible reads in Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Now, here's the good news. Jesus is saying to you and to me, if we will accept his invitation of learning from him how to do life that will find true life. In following his way, although it might sound narrow, we'll learn how to live the way that God has designed for us to live all along. As we walk with Jesus and keep company with him, we'll find love, grace, mercy, hope, and help. We'll find life. Now, some of you are going to want to ask me, Okay, with this, this bold teaching and this bold self-identifying statement of Jesus, what about the person who's never heard about Jesus? What about the person who's never heard about Jesus? Well, I have two answers to that question. The first is that God didn't call you or me to be in management. He called us to be in promotion. And so because of that, my role, my job, your role if you're a Jesus follower is to simply promote who Jesus says he is. But we don't have to make the management decisions. We don't have to make the judgment. I'm so glad of that. How about you? God's gonna sort that out. We trust that God has the wisdom and the mercy and the justice to, to make those right decisions. So that's my first answer. The second answer to that question What about the people who haven't heard about Jesus? What about the people that haven't heard this statement that he is the way, the truth, and life? You know what my my second answer is? Let's go tell them. If we really convince that he is the way to live real life, if he is the truth, he is that reliable answer, and if he is that rescue rope from heaven, 
then let's go tell them. I want to leave you with one more analogy for this weekend. Because maybe some of you are still struggling with, okay, can I really embrace this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And see, I believe that this is good news. Because you see, we've all made bad choices. We've all allowed pride to cause us to do things we shouldn't do, and rebellion and sin. And in fact, the Bible says that, that sin is just, just sucks us in and it just leads to, to all kinds of heartache. In fact, uh, the picture that I get in Scripture and the picture of my own life that, that left ourselves, we just kind of get in this, this bad way and, and, and that if you could just picture with me out here in the in front of the stage here, if this was just a body of water, And I believe that the description we see in the Bible of what sin does to our lives, it just pulls us down. And it causes us to be drowning in all kinds of muck and mire and heartache. And if you can just picture this body of water, and and out there in the body of water, there's a current, there's things pulling people down, and there's people out there struggling. And, And... the, the most merciful thing that we could do is, is throw a rope to them. Well, I didn't do a very good job of that. Let me do a better job. See, I should have practiced this. I practiced last night to the side. But if we just, I don't want to hit anybody. There you go, and I'll let go. You don't want to let go of the rope. <laughs> but see, you throw that rope out there, and you hold on to it, maybe tied to something firm, and then you pull people to safety. You see, this is the picture I see in Scripture. Because of sin, we're drowning. We're struggling. Left to ourselves. And God throws this rescue rope from heaven. His son, Jesus Christ. And he says, this is the way, the truth, and life. Just grab onto the rope. I'll pull you to safety. Jesus is that lifeline. Can you imagine someone drowning in a body of water and you throw them a rope and they say, are you saying this is the only rope I can grab onto? They wouldn't do that. They'd grab onto the rope and say, this is my way to safety. Aren't you glad that God threw a rope down for us and said, here's my son. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Have you grabbed on to the rope? Is there someone else in your life that you need to point to the rope? The Bible continues to point out that the one who came from heaven to rescue from us from ourselves and our sin, the Bible states emphatically that, that God wants no one to be excluded and for all to be included in this rescue mission. In Romans 3, we find these words, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Jesus is that rescue rope from heaven for everyone. Have you grabbed onto it? Is there someone else you need to point to and say, you need to grab the rope? so you can be pulled to safety. One more convincing thing for us to think about how Jesus is the way. We're gonna take communion now just to remember him and to remember he is that 
rescue up from heaven. Think about when Jesus, before he went to the cross, do you remember what he prayed? He prayed three times, not my will, but your will be done. What was he saying? He was saying, in essence, God, if there's any other way, let's go to plan B. What was the answer? There is no other way. You're the way, Jesus. As we take communion today, let's realize that the communion reminds us of, that we need to grab onto the rope of Jesus Christ, that lifeline. We need to grab onto the way, the truth, and life. We need to hold on dearly because he's the one that will pull us to safety. Let's, in this time, realize that none of our good deeds, none of just being able to cross all the T's and dot all the I's in doctrine, none of that's going to save us. The only one that's going to save us and give us eternal life and eternal assurance that we'll be with the Father forever is Jesus. Let's grab firmly under the rope during this time of communion. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you for what a, what a great God you are. Thank you that Jesus is a great Savior, that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life. Help us look to no other. Help us not look to ourselves or our own good deeds. Help us look solely to him for our salvation, for our assurance, for our confidence. Help us fix our eyes on him and remember him that was willing to go to the cross because, well, there was no other way for us to be in a right relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to do that and to be our way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.